a suicide of someone you know or love, chronic pain, cancer, or death. The worst things this world has to throw at us sometimes come, and when they do, what do we do with that suffering? Would you look with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 130? And it'll be up on the screen, so let's read together. Psalm 130, a song of ascent. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of God. Now, Psalm 130 really helps us by walking through a journey that many of us go on. And I think in many ways, it's the journey that all of us need to go on as we process suffering, pain, and sorrow. According to Psalm 130, the journey we go on in lament when we are in pain and suffering is a journey whereby we move from weeping to worshiping to waiting and finally, to witnessing. Weeping, worshiping, waiting, and witnessing. Psalm 130 reflects a four-stage journey that helps us handle the challenges of suffering in our day-to-day lives. And the psalmist begins just where we do. Well, if you're anything like me, this is where you start. I think as people, we naturally do start our response to suffering with weeping. The psalmist begins with weeping, with crying, with howling, with snorting, with tears and snot running down his face saying, Lord, this is awful. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. In other words, what are you doing, Lord? I need your help. At this moment, I'm in the depths of sorrow. Please, would you rescue me? This is not a careful, measured piece of prayer. It's not like, oh yeah, Lord, things are rather difficult right now. It's, that's not where the psalmist begins. It's out of the depths of his sorrow and pain. The psalmist cries out to God. This is a howling sound of someone who's weak to their knees, broken, hurting, and desperate. I cry to you, Lord. Have mercy on me. Hear my voice. Friends, it's wholly appropriate, good, and biblical to weep and to cry out to God when suffering comes. Now, this doesn't mean crying for every minor thing. It doesn't mean that every, every time anything happens to you, you burst into tears, be distraught, and mourn for a long period of time. No. But when suffering comes in a serious way, as it does to all of us, the Bible actually gives us an approach that involves expressing our emotions through crying, through mourning, 
even through shouting sometimes and allowing that emotion to come out when tragedy strikes. And now depending on your cultural background or your personality, this might come naturally. Or it might be a challenge to you, as it is to me. Growing up, I was never really good at dealing with my emotions and expressing them. I was never good at processing how I was feeling, particularly as I experienced hardships or pain. I used to try to put on a brave face and act like everything was normal and okay, bottling everything up inside, trying to hold it together. And I would never let anyone in, not even God. And I would never let any emotion out. And if I'm honest, I still struggle with this today. But in many ways, this is me, but it's cultural, but it isn't biblical, and nor is it helpful. No, the Bible actually expects noisy, messy, emotional, and honest lament when suffering comes. And sometimes it lasts for hours. Sometimes it lasts for days. Sometimes it lasts for weeks. Sometimes it lasts for months years, or even until we meet Jesus again. The Bible gives us space to grieve, and it calls us to grieve appropriately in light of the depth and severity of our suffering. It's good and biblical to weep and cry out to God when suffering comes, and it's appropriate, good, and biblical to grieve as your suffering continues. And when suffering comes to those who we love, we're supposed to have the same response to them as well. As followers of Jesus, we're called to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to carry the burdens that our brothers and sisters carry by grieving with them. And one of the most appropriate ways we can love those who are grieving is simply to just be there with them, to sit with them, to listen to them and to weep with them rather than charging in with answers and advice or even Christian comments like it's going to be all right. Just be there with them because you don't know if it's going to be all right. The Bible never promises us that it's all going to be all right in the present. In fact, as we've seen, the Bible promises us just the opposite, that we will experience trouble, that we will get hurt, that we will suffer in this life. And yes, ultimately, God will make all things right in the resurrection and in glory. But I don't know if it's going to all be okay now. It might not all be okay now for you for years. And that's not the answer of the psalmist here. The answer of the psalmist is to begin with crying out to God from the depths. And so my brothers and sisters, would we do that when suffering comes our way? And would we allow others to do the same? And I think one of the risks that we have in our connected and technological world, particularly with social media, is that rather than lamenting to God, we end up venting to people. So when something sad happens, we want to get our answers and we want to get some solidarity. So instead of taking our lament upwards in prayer, we take it sideways to venting to people. What we need is not the false assurance, though, or the validation from our Facebook friends or the numbing ourselves through endless scrolling on Instagram. What we need is the comfort, grace, and love that our Heavenly Father offers to us 
the one who created us, who truly knows us, and who truly knows what we need. So would we go to him to get what we need from the one who can truly give it to us? The other risk is that we can try and answer questions that we really don't have the answers for. And so, more and more regularly to the question of why has God allowed suffering, honestly, I think that one of the best answers to that question, and the answer that I've been sharing with people is, I just don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not just honest, but it's actually biblically faithful as well. I don't know, and I don't want to pretend to know why. But what I do want to do first is to come alongside you in your grief and sorrow, to weep with you, to listen to you, to pray for you, and to help you express your grief to God and do it together. And for all the things that Job's comforters get wrong in his story in the Bible, the thing that they get right is that when they first arrived at Job's side, they spend a week saying nothing. And they simply sit with him in his grief. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. And so the psalmist doesn't begin with answers or explanations. No, the psalmist begins with tears. What do we do with suffering? We begin with weeping. But notice in the psalm, the psalmist doesn't stay there the whole time. He moves from weeping and eventually in verses 3 to 4, he starts worshipping. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. So this is a prayer of worship to God because of the gospel. It's effectively him saying, Lord, I'm crying out to you from the depths of my pain and suffering. But I know that if you were to treat me according to what my sins deserve, I would be in a far worse state. I'd be suffering far worse than I am now. So I want to give thanks to you even though things may be very difficult in my life. Because ultimately there is forgiveness and grace in you, the God of heaven. I'm going to come to you and praise you for that even as I continue to wrestle with these other things that are going on because you are merciful, you are gracious, and you are forgiving. And that's why I'm in awe of you. Notice the power of worship and suffering. That when we worship God in our suffering, what we do is remind ourselves that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how hard things are, we're actually being treated better than we deserve. One pastor, having just come through his own battle with cancer, where his, he and his wife and his family thought that he was probably going to die, he, he made it through, and he wrote this in the end, and I, I think it could be helpful. He said that the greatest enemy to gratitude is a sense of entitlement. The moment you think you are hard done by and deserve more, then you can wave goodbye to thankfulness. However, circumstances of sickness, death, and disappointment can lend themselves to a sense of entitlement like no other. And so cultivating gratitude and contentment in all circumstances can be a stiff challenge in a storm of suffering. I have already received from God way more than I deserve. If God were to treat me fairly now, 
Not only would he back up and remove every single blessing I've had in my 39 years, but he would cast me into eternal hell. That's what I deserve. Anything better than that is a bonus, and bonuses make me grateful. And some of us find that hard to hear. But that's actually biblical Christianity, isn't it? You and I don't have what we deserve, not because we have far less than we deserve, but because we have far more through the grace of Christ. Think about it like, think about it like this with me. These two hands represent what you think you have and what you think you deserve. Now, if you think you have a lot and you think you deserve, you don't deserve very much at all, that gap is called gratitude because you recognize that you have so much more in Christ than you don't deserve. But if you think you deserve a lot and you think you have very little, then that gap is grumbling. And so the difference between grumbling and gratitude is your understanding of how much you have versus how much you think you deserve. And the psalmist speaks to himself and says, you have far more than you deserve. Lord, thank you that you have given me forgiveness and grace and freedom when I don't deserve it. And because you don't record my sins, because with you there is forgiveness, I can with reverence praise you and serve you. And, serve you. and knowing this, I can worship you in the midst of the storm. When suffering hits me and hits you, whether it be broken relationships, a broken body, death or anything else, it is good to remember what we deserve in ourselves and what we have and have been given in Christ as a result of the grace of God. And as we remember and with gratitude give thanks, we move from weeping to worshiping. And then from there, having spent time weeping and worshiping, in verses five to six, the psalmist begins to talk about waiting. And I think this is the hardest bit. Well, it's the bit that I find the most difficult, waiting. I actually don't find it as hard to cry out to God in desperation or to declare the goodness of God because of his grace to me. But personally, I find it really hard to wait. But the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Because what else are you going to put your hope in? God's word is the only source of true and lasting hope in this world. And hoping in his, in his word, I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. When we are in the depths of pain and suffering, we are called to wait for the Lord. We wait, putting our hope and trust in God's word, knowing in his word, he says he's going to make all things right one day. He's going to make all things new. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to redeem and renew the whole creation. That there will be no more suffering, no more pain, and no more tears. That death will be defeated and that we will be with God forever. All of this is coming, and we are called to put our hope in that word. But in the meantime, 
we've got to wait. We've got to anticipate and long for that day while living with the disconnect that that's not our reality yet. And the psalmist, to try and communicate what that's like, uses the analogy of a watchman. Now, in the ancient world, watchmen didn't have wristwatches or, or smartphones to tell the time. They didn't know exactly when their shift would end or when the sun would rise. They couldn't plan ahead and say, okay, I've got another hour of this, and then Pete's going to come and take over my shift. It's no. That's not what watchmen did. They just knew it was dark, and they knew that they were probably in some watch of the night, and that's all they knew. They didn't know when morning was going to come, but they knew that it would. And so they would wait and wait and wait. They would wait for the morning knowing that it would come, but not knowing when. And that's how the psalmist expects us to wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord to come and redeem us from our situations, knowing that he will come, but not knowing when. And in many situations of intense suffering, our deliverance will come before we die. But in some, our deliverance will only come after death. But either way, deliverance is coming. And so in the meantime, we wait for the Lord like a watchman waits for the morning. We know that the day of redemption is coming, but we don't know when it will be. So we hang in there and anticipate that day. We look forward to it and we let it sustain us in the dark nights of our suffering, knowing that this is not the end, like a watchman waiting for the morning. Have you ever seen how penguins wait? <laughs> They're one of the best animals in all of creation for witnessing what it is to wait. Now, now these are emperor penguins and they live in colonies in Antarctic, I hope that's the right picture. Um, and, but as winter approaches, these emperor penguins begin laying their eggs. And after laying their egg, the female penguins go back into the ocean to feed and to replenish themselves before coming back in the spring with food for the others to eat. But during that cold and harsh winter time, all the male emperor penguins would huddle together in minus 70 degree blizzards in Antarctica with no food to eat where the sun sets and it doesn't rise for two to three months. And they just make a massive shuffling crowd in the howling blizzards in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. And these emperor penguins shuffle around looking after these little eggs on their feet, which are their chicks. And they shuffle around like this for months trying to keep warm. And I wonder if you can imagine them huddling together and start singing the song from Matt Redman. Look, I don't know if they sing Matt Redman songs, but if they did, they would sing this one. It's, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. And I don't know if penguins sing worship songs, but if they did, they would definitely sing that one. It's an anticipation that light will come, but I'm not sure when. And in the meantime, it's awful and it's terrible, but I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait, trusting on the basis of the word of the Lord. That is my hope. Then my hope is secure. And that he will come and make it right, even if I don't know when that is. We wait with certain hope. And then finally, after weeping, worshiping, and waiting, the psalmist starts witnessing in verses 7 to 8. And I think this is powerful. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Do you see what's happened? The psalmist has moved from crying in the depths of despair to rallying those around him to point to the goodness and faithfulness of God, witnessing to God's love and God's redemption. Now, if you're suffering... You may have no idea how much power it has when you witness to the goodness of God even in and through your suffering. That's been my experience. Um, As an example, I I think back actually to the last time I was ever in church with my gran, my nana. And she was sitting next to me with her feet up in the chair in front of her um, because she was too weak to stand. But, but we were there, we were in church, and we were worshiping our Lord Jesus together with our community. And the last few months had been particularly hard. Uh, lots of ups and downs, lots of trips to the hospital, lots of sleepless nights, and lots of pain and suffering. And, and during that time, those few months, uh, two things have always stuck with me as I've looked back. One was the sacrificial love of my parents particularly my mom, as she selflessly cared for her mom. But secondly was the the wrestling and struggle of my nana as she struggled with God in the midst of her suffering. There was lots of weeping and waiting, but there was also worshiping and witnessing. And, And there we were in church, and as we sang together, I'll never forget looking down and seeing her little toes wiggle um, as the music, as uh, we started singing the songs. And she sang, and she sang of the love and faithfulness of God, even in the midst of her pain and suffering. She couldn't lift up her hands, but she could wiggle her toes. And through that small and seemingly insignificant thing, that act that day, my nana witnessed to me. She encouraged me, she strengthened me. She testified to me that even in our suffering, God is good, that he is faithful and worthy of our worship. That even though it's hard, that even though things don't always make sense, my Nana witnessed to me that our God is truly the only source of comfort and hope in our pain and suffering. There is great power to witnessing or the suffering has not yet gone away. For a fellow believer, this can be very encouraging. I'm sure that a lot of us sitting here today are Christians who've found our hearts and faith stirred when we've heard the testimony, the witness of the saints to the goodness of God even in their suffering. But you might not be a believer here today. 
and you might be sitting here considering Christianity. And I've actually found that people are quite often challenged by the peace, contentment, and even joy that Christians can have, even as they experience great suffering. And it happens that people find themselves asking questions like, I don't know, what kind of thing is this you believe in that is able to support you and strengthen you through that kind of suffering? What is it that does that? Where does that power come from for, for that sort of joy in the midst of that sort of darkness? And there's so many examples of this that it's kind of hard to know where to start. But I've talked a lot today, so I think I'll end with one person that has particularly helped me in thinking about the way that people witnessed the steadfast love and redemption of the Lord in the midst of dark suffering. And for years, I didn't even know his name. Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a prominent lawyer and businessman in Chicago. He was also an elder and a hymn writer for his local church. And he had a lovely family, a beautiful wife, Anna, and five children, but they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost to the great Chicago fire. Two years later, in November of 1873, his wife and four daughters boarded a ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean en route to Europe. About four days into their journey, the ship had a horrible collision with another and sinks. His wife, Anna, survives, but his four daughters, Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, all drowned in one day, together with more than 200 other passengers. His wife eventually gets to Wales and sends him a telegram nine days later, and it simply says two words, saved, alone. And Spafford begins to write this hymn, which we still use today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bless of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And if you know that song, you know the power that comes from someone witnessing to the love and redemption of God in the midst of dreadful suffering. It's like the old English pastor Charles Purgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. O blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and to God alone. Or as the psalmist here says, Israel, church, my brother and sister, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. What do we do with suffering? We weep. We worship. 
we wait and we witness. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the power of the gospel to sustain and strengthen us. I pray that whatever challenges, trials, or sufferings that my brothers and sisters here are facing, that you would enable us to weep through that pain, to worship you for your grace, to wait for you, Lord, and to witness to the unfailing love and full redemption found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.